Thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. During the thick of the holidays, when you're ready for a break or some alone time, there's a bunch more NPR podcasts you should check out. Comedy and pop culture, creative storytelling, and insights into economics and the hidden forces that shape us. Find all our NPR podcasts at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. And enjoy the holidays. Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast, here with the holiday edition of our weekly roundup. We have a lot to talk about. The Democratic debate from last week, House Speaker Paul Ryan's big budget deal to cap off the year, and what exactly is in that deal. And we're going to share a very special political version of The Night Before Christmas, written and read by our own Ron Elving. First, some introductions. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Tamara Keith, White House correspondent. I'm Scott Tetro. I cover tech and the campaign. I'm Susan Davis, and I cover Congress. And Mary, happy Hana Christmas Kwanzaa. Happy that. And same to back you. Back at you. Yeah, Thank right back you. at you. Thank you. Starbucks Red Cup. And Festivus. All right. First up, there was a debate last Saturday night, a Democratic debate in New Hampshire, with Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, and Martin O'Malley, the former Maryland governor who was running for president. We've talked about this before, but there's not a lot of action on the Democratic side of this campaign. That went for this debate, too, correct? Well, there was actually, I think, a little bit of drama heading into it um, about the the fight over the voter data. And we'll get to that in a second. But in terms of the debate itself, they really did get into it about foreign policy, about national defense. Uh, Both Martin O'Malley and Bernie Sanders went after Hillary Clinton for being Uh, in favor or more open to regime change than they would be. But I have to say that for me, the real take home was how again and again and again, Hillary Clinton attacked Donald Trump by name. He is becoming ISIS's best recruiter. They are going to people showing videos of Donald Trump insulting Islam and Muslims in order to recruit more radical jihadists. Okay, so, so was that true? Well, the, the fact checkers would tell you that there are no known ISIS videos talking about Donald Trump or using Donald Trump. That said, uh, national security experts will tell you that us against Muslims kind of rhetoric that's come out in recent weeks and, and Donald Trump's policy proposal to uh, prevent Muslims from coming into the country at least for a time, that kind of thing would give ISIS some propaganda advantage and could help in in radicalizing people. So why only Trump? Why is she only naming Trump here? One reason is that she has long wanted to associate the entire Republican Party with Donald Trump, trying to paint the whole field with that brush. Yeah, it's also a very like common and useful political tactic to focus on the opponent that you want to be the nominee. We <laughs> see this in races a lot, that if, if you elevate someone in a wide field of primary contenders to say, this is who Hillary Clinton thinks is the front runner, then the attention focuses back on Trump. I think it is fair to say that Donald Trump is the nominee Hillary Clinton would most love to run against. Absolutely. So elevating him in that field against people like Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush that might be more complicating opponents is good for her. It's good politics for her. And I think it helps her raise money by going directly after Donald Trump, who really provokes both sides of the base. And Trump is the tiger that every time you poke him, he's going to say something. And wrong. And he come really back at her. It. And he did, right? He engaged after this debate. Absolutely. That brings us all to kind of a back and forth that Hillary and Trump got into this week. And a certain word that Trump used when talking about Hillary, 
that you may not want to explain to younger listeners. So go ahead and skip forward about five minutes or so if you want to do that. But uh, all right. So, Tam, you had the privilege of covering the story this week. What was the word and how did it happen? I think we have tape of him using it in context. In short, he was at this rally in Michigan and he was talking about Hillary Clinton. And first he was talking about how he thought she is weak. She's a loser. I mean, I'm paraphrasing here. Um, She even lost to President Obama in the Democratic primary in 2008. And here comes the trigger word. She was going to beat. She was favored to win. And she got schlonged. She lost. I mean, she lost. Schlonged. So we can imagine what anyone who is using this word intends it to mean. Um, Trump used this word. Was it with that meaning? That is the meaning that in the first 12 hours or so after he used that word, maybe in the first 20 hours after he used that word, everyone assumed it meant something related to male genitalia because that is the common usage. And Hillary Clinton's campaign was asked to respond. And Karen Finney, one of her spokespeople, referred to it as a disgusting sexist slur. Jen Palmieri tweeted that everyone understands the humiliation this degrading language inflicts on all women. Who is Jen Palmieri? She is uh, the chief communications person for Hillary Clinton. And that is the way everyone took it. But this exact pattern has happened several times now with Donald Trump. I mean, two examples that come to mind is uh, Megyn Kelly, the Fox News anchor. He said that she was, quote, bleeding out of her wherever uh, when she was questioning him during a debate. And then he um, he appeared to mimic a, a New York Times reporter with a physical disability. And each time, as soon as this backlash or outrage began, Trump said, no, 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 no. Didn't mean that. You're, mista- you're, you're misquoting me. I didn't mean that. And, and each time when you look back, he said about nine tenths of what would be kind of an offensive thing, but always left himself just a little bit of wiggle room. So I start to wonder, like, is this totally intentional on Trump's point to say something that's like kind of offensive, but allows him a way to say you're misinterpreting me and, and attack does, the media. Yeah. And does this stuff ever really hurt him? No. Oh, it, no, it doesn't hurt him. No. And here, here's a fun fact about Donald Trump. He has not run a single television ad yet. He yeah. is. As he's he had a few say, radio ads. He's done a couple of radio ads. But as he would say, he is dominating in the polls and he is doing it all on free media. Yeah. Or um, earned media. He earns that coverage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're right. You're right. He earned that. You now, could also, though, make an argument that that language and the what he did also does have a secondary effect of helping Clinton in that particularly among women voters, those kind of attacks are seen as misogynistic. They are seen as sexist. And I think that rallies the women who support her, particularly older women, generational women who view sexism through a different uh, paradigm than younger women do in that divide. And it does help rally voters. And I feel like there is still a little bit of flatness in the Democratic base towards Hillary Clinton. So making her seem like she is under attack, she is being victimized, and look at what these people are saying about her isn't necessarily the worst thing for her. So, you know, speaking of this word, uh, it has actually been uttered by an NPR staffer on the radio before, correct? Yes, and Donald Trump tweeted about that, too. He tweets... NPR's Neil Conan said schlonged to The Washington Post read the 1984 Mondale Ferraro campaign. Hypocrisy. Hashtag hypocrisy. We got the tape. And Chris Eliza, that ticket went on to uh, get schlonged at the, uh, at the the polls, but that's a historic moment. Absolutely historic moment, Neil. But as you and I should out, say that Neil Conan, who now works at Hawaii Public Radio, wrote an op-ed about this where he said that the term has Yiddish roots and he apologized. 
And at the height of all of this controversy, Hillary Clinton was at a town hall meeting. And as she often does, she called on a little girl who conveniently helped her deliver the very message she wanted to deliver. What are you going to do about the all this bullying? Not just because of just people who want to be mean, but... This little girl has asthma and she's asking Hillary Clinton about bullying and and then Clinton brings her in for a hug. That was really brave. You know, bullying has always been around, but it seems to have gotten somehow easier. So she goes on for a while. She gives kind of a long answer. She actually seems slightly emotional or maybe like she has a cold, unclear. And then she comes around to this. That's why it's important to stand up to bullies wherever they are and why we shouldn't let anybody bully his way into the presidency Uh, because that is not who we are as Americans. Okay, so shots fired. (laughs) Without saying his name this time. Because it's so clear who she's talking about, but she doesn't have to say his name. Okay, there's another story to talk about. Scott, you have been following this one. You're already flexing your muscles. I see you over there ready to talk about this. Um, this is the Bernie Sanders campaign voter data mini scandal. Mm-hmm. Talk us through this. Sure. So the uh, the short explanation of what has become a pretty complicated story is that uh, every campaign on the Democratic side running for, for president, for Senate, for anything. Dog catcher. For dog catcher. Uses the same... Um, central database of information about registered voters. It's maintained by the party and it's run by a company called NGP Van that has a contract with the Democratic National Committee to kind of keep this central database on. So basically every campaign is using this. And we found out that last week there was a glitch in the software that runs this. And during about a 40 minute window, staffers working for Bernie Sanders campaign were able to access and in several cases save Uh, files of information that the Clinton campaign had put together prioritizing, you know, key likely supporters in in key early primary states like New Hampshire and South Carolina. Was part of this issue because of a kind of security flaw from the company and the way that it held the files? Yeah. uh, Tamara and I were talking earlier this week and and we kind of came up with a good uh, way to think about this. It's like a hotel where there are those like shared rooms where there's a door, a locked door in between. And generally speaking, you don't open that lock. It's it's locked. Well, and there's two doors usually. Like, you can open the door on your side and they can open the door on their side. Yeah, right. so if you and your cousins and your grandma are all at the same hotel, you can open the doors and go yeah. back and forth. Exactly. However, generally speaking, if it's a stranger next door <laughs> or your competition next door, you leave those doors locked. Well, what happened is the data company introduced a bug into the system that unlocked that the door. unlocked the doors. They're like, oh, this door's open. And they pick some stuff up. Try it on some toiletries. Yeah, yeah, went rifling through the toiletries. Check to see if the Bible was the same over there. <laughs> and there, there is dispute over the intent here because the okay. Sanders people are saying what they were trying to do was simply document this problem. They're saying that, that they had seen similar problems before in some of these other systems that Democratic campaigns share. So they went in, they clicked around, and uh, they saved some files. Now, I've talked to a lot of people with experience in this world, and they said if they were really trying to randomly show some files, they wouldn't have gone right to New Hampshire or right to South mm, Carolina or right to state. Yeah. So there was a huge uproar. Uh, th- this consumed the entire political news cycle last Friday. And this was resolved around midnight yes. when uh, Tamara and I were uh, suddenly filing stories again, and the DNC had decided... Mid- I'm, 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 
Midnight Friday Saturday night. Midnight morning. Saturday, midnight Saturday morning. Yeah, okay. midnight Saturday morning, the Democratic uh, National Committee decided to let the Sanders campaign back into the database. This is after the Sanders campaign, I should say, had filed a lawsuit demanding that the DNC do this. And that was filed, what, like Friday afternoon? Yeah, yeah. late afternoon Friday. And um, so going into the debate, all of a sudden, everybody was talking about data, and and which was really interesting because these voter files and the way that campaigns gather this information and then use this information is a huge part of day-to-day campaigning. But it's something that nobody ever talks about. So in terms of the list, though, I did not know before this story broke that, like, the Democratic Party has the master list. Mm -hmm. Like, how does that interplay work? So there's a list that the candidates have, but it comes from a bigger... DNC list? Well, yeah. How does that work? And, and do the Republicans do it this way? No, so the Republicans do things differently. They don't have this central party controlled file like the Democrats do. The Democrats have had this set up this way for about a decade now. And it's really uh, all thanks to uh, another guy from Vermont, Howard Dean. When uh, Howard Dean took over the DNC uh, after the 2004 election, he and other Democrats in charge decided that the party really needed to step up its voter files game. So what they did was they took a process that had up until that point been basically state by state. You know, New York kept its own files. The Pennsylvania party kept its own files. And they, uh, they kind of scooped all this information up from all the states. And the key point here is that they picked this one company, now called NGP Van, to be in charge of all of this. And they said, all right, we're all going to work off of one system. And the main reason they decided to do this was they figured that all of that information that campaigns gather over the course of primaries, once those races were over, they could kind of fold into that one voter file. So it's always being updated. You're always adding information. And this time around, the Sanders campaign, the Clinton campaign, and the O'Malley campaign can all benefit from the work that Barack Obama's campaign did in 2012. So that's the idea behind this. Now, a lot of people in the Democratic system have a lot of problems with this, especially the idea that one company has such a big amount of control over everything. But by and large, a lot of people do agree that, yes, kind of using information from one campaign to another is, generally speaking, a good idea. So have they fixed it yet? Well, the Sanders campaign has access to this information again. Uh, The DNC has got an audit going, an investigation going into what happened. Tellingly, they will not tell us when this information will be released and whether it will be public, which is something we're following up on. And the company NGP Van says they had already corrected that bug and they've kind of gone top to bottom to make sure this doesn't happen again. All right, kids, moral of the story, stay off the Internet. (laughs) Or something. (laughs) Never tweet. Never tweet. Um, All right, Susan Davis, you had a big piece this week on Paul Ryan, the new Speaker of the House. He quietly got a big budget deal passed this month, and he capped off a really divisive year in Congress by getting some actual stuff done. Yeah. I mean, so Paul Ryan, little just back up a little bit, took over for House Speaker John Boehner, who resigned in at the end of October following a very tumultuous year between Republicans at war with each other inside the House. Ryan is, I would say, still in the honeymoon period of this speakership. It's only been about seven weeks. He's a very popular guy. He came into the job with a lot of goodwill. Uh, the deal that they passed at the end of the year uh, is over over $1 trillion in spending. This is what it costs to fund your government for one year. It's amazing. <laughs> this is all the money oh, that goes. This is the FBI. This is the National Institutes of Health. This is your parks. This is your prisons. This is everything that the government funds. Uh, so they passed that deal. 
And then they also passed a tax package that makes permanent a bunch of tax breaks, things that regular people might benefit from are things like child tax credits, earned income tax credits. Uh, and so that was it was a pretty good win for him. Inside this package, though, because these are must-pass bills, they become vehicles for other more controversial bills. Uh, and I think probably the most controversial piece that was tucked in there is a cybersecurity bill. It's legislation that both chambers of Congress had already voted on, but they hadn't really worked out all the details. They kind of tucked it right in there without much review. And it has and a name. Right? It, it's, a, it's a cybersecurity act. It doesn't have a very fancy name. Siza. 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 And you make it sound like a pizza. Siza. Yeah. Super size up. And, no, sorry. I mean, and we've heard a lot about this in the news. So it's companies that have been hacked. Companies like Target have been hacked. Banks have been targeted. And often we believe they're attacks from the Chinese and cybersecurity has been a top issue. And what this bill essentially does is tells these companies, hey, if you come to the federal government and give us the goods on when you're being hacked or when you've been attempted to be hacked and give us all that information, we'll protect you from any lawsuits. It's a volunt- Lawsuits from people that are customers. Yes. Because oh. think about all the personal data you have online, everything you buy. They have your credit card information. They they know where you live. They know whether you buy diapers or, you know, they know everything about you. And so there's questions from privacy advocates about what are these companies going to have to turn over um, and how much protections you have. So a lot of a lot of companies, Apple is a notable company, uh, Reddit, Yelp are all companies that have kind of said, hey, we don't like this legislation. Oh, it's, really? Yeah. Cause it, so concerned. they want to maintain the right to be sued? Well, they want to maintain their own proprietary consumer information and have it be protected. And that part of these companies that you have from us, from consumers, is some level of confidence that the information you give Apple isn't just going to be turned over to the federal government. And that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And this was one of those things where it was controversial on both the sort of the far left and the far right. Yes. Yeah. And and that's why it, it kicked up once people realized it was actually in there, it kicked up a storm. Yeah. It's, think of it in terms of just this broader privacy surveillance debate we've been having about what can the government listen to? How much of your information are they entitled to? So as of now, though, this is law. This was passed. People aren't happy about it. I'm certain this is not the last argument you're going to hear about cybersecurity. And so, Sue, you also hung out with Paul Ryan himself. Yeah, he's How been was doing, that? We, we talked to him right before Congress left. And one of the things that he talked about, which I thought was really interesting, was this larger role he sees himself playing in the Republican Party. We had the backdrop of the presidential election. If you recall, Paul Ryan was the 2012 vice presidential nominee. He knows a little something about running for national office. And that he said he saw himself in this sort of divided, fractured Republican Party as being uh, a uniting force behind that. And I think we have some tape. Uh, my goal is to help unify the conservative movement so we can unify the Republican Party so we can give the country a really clear choice so that the citizens of this nation get to choose in 2016 what kind of country they want to have for the 21st century. There's, It's just nothing short of a generational defining moment we are facing next year. So and part of what I think is interesting about this is so much of the rhetoric on the presidential field has been negative. It has been uh, the country's heading down the tubes, doom and gloom, the future is dark, you need to elect us to make it better. And Paul Ryan has taken a very starkly different view that he speaks in very optimistic tones. His big speech that he gave at the Library of Congress setting out the agenda on the Hill was called Confident America. It's all about the, the strength of the country, maximizing that and the tone of it is so much different. And I think he has a very different view of how you win over Voters. And one thing I'm really curious about, you've been covering the House for a long time. 
How much of a difference do you see in terms of day-to-day operations and in terms of how things just work over there with, with a new speaker? Yeah. Can, you know, how, how much control does someone like Ryan or Boehner or Pelosi have? Initially, I think he has a lot of goodwill from these conservatives that gave Boehner such a hard time because he's new. So change alone has given him a little bit of breathing room. He has done little things that have helped him, though. One example is there is a committee in the House that decides who get committee assignments. For the rank-and-file lawmakers, this is a big deal. This is the why they came to the Hill, why, what, what they want to serve on. And Ryan reduced his own power on this committee. He symbolically gave away one of his votes. The Speaker has weighted votes. He gets five. He went down to four and handed back more power to the rank-and-file. The Freedom Caucus, these guys that you hear about that have been like that were just driving John Boehner crazy, they put a member of that onto the steering committee. He's trying to sort of flat earth the way leadership is. He says, I'm trying to give away power. I want more people to feel like they have uh, a stake in what comes out of this place. And that was very different than what John Boehner did because he was always being forced to singularly negotiate with the White House. Whether Paul Ryan can do that is a big question. Part of the reason John Boehner always had to do that is because the rank and file could never come up with something they could agree (laughs) on. So that is what Paul Ryan's saying he wants to do. I think that's his intention. Whether his own members will let him do that is the big question mark for 2016. And you had a pretty funny interaction with him about one of his hobbies, other than P90X. So Paul Ryan uh, has gotten a lot of attention. He's grown a beard, which nobody cared about when he wasn't speaker, but now it's become this sort of like flashpoint in style. And he talked about he has this beard because he's a deer hunter. And he only has one deer, and he's he's not going to shave the beard and he gets two more. And I said, well, you must eat a lot of meat. Wait, 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 wait. I'm confused. He only has one deer. He only has one deer caught so far this deer hunting season. And he says every year he needs to catch at least three because that's how much he needs the meat. And I said to him, what do you need all that meat for? That is a lot of meat. And he explained, I think we have the cut. A year, yeah, I make I make sausage. Uh, it's a hobby of mine. Um, I do it with my kids. Wait, you sausage making yeah, is your yeah, hobby? Yeah. Well, it's a hobby, it's not the hobby I have. But like, sausage making is a metaphor for like, making legislation. Yeah, no, no, I actually, I actually make venison sausage. Yes, yes, correct. No, I actually make sausage, venison sausage. I need more deer to do that. <laughs> he, he seems like he doesn't get... He did not at first. And that's why you can hear... That's that's me on the tape there. I know the audio is great. But you can hear my, like, incredulity when he says this. Where I stopped and I said, wait, sausage making is your hobby? Like... <laughs> And he huh. was so earnest in, like, not getting yeah. the metaphor that sausage making is what we've, like, it's almost, it's, like, thing. cliche to say that now about making laws is, like, watching sausage being made. And he didn't get it. And it was this very funny moment. <laughs> so sausage making is his passion. In Washington and in Wisconsin. More ways than in one. Washington and in Wisconsin. He also makes jerky. <laughs> Which seems a All lot right. more usual than sausage making to me. Like, I, I think I know a couple of people who make jerky. Yeah. But... And he hunts the deer with a bow and arrow, which oh I my also... God. Yes. <laughs> that That is the way a he's real like, man He's like a bow deer. hunter, which what? I think is an even added layer of, like, toughness. And, it's and just, he does, it's like, hard. 90X, yes. right? And he's just, wow, man's man. All right, now it's time for Can't Let It Go, where we all share something we just can't stop thinking about, politics or otherwise. Uh, what's yours, Tam? It is politics. Uh, Lindsey Graham, Senator Lindsey Graham from South Carolina this week, dropped out of the Republican race for president. But there's still, what, like 13 running? We still have a baker's dozen. Okay. Uh, But Lindsey Graham, uh, he says he got into this race because he he really wanted to drive a conversation about national defense and defeating ISIS. And uh, he says now there are some candidates who are agreeing with him. So Is that true? 
Uh, you know, I think Marco Rubio is pretty much in line with Lindsey Graham, except Lindsey Graham wants, um, he wants 10, ground 000, troops. He wants ground troops, and no one else in, in the race is calling for that. But really, to me, the thing about Lindsey Graham's candidacy that I loved more than anything is that it was clear from beginning to end, kids' table, no <laughs> one paying attention, no one showing up at his, at his events, all of that. Lindsey Graham was having a great time. Yeah. And he was hilarious on the campaign trail in this, like, really cornball, old-school, like, Catskills comedian kind of way. I saw him a couple times, and it was just like, you know, at these day-long candidate cattle calls where everybody talks. And he would always have, like, the most entertaining, just, like, corny stump speech, even while talking about really serious issues like terrorism and ISIS and and Syria. And he played well with the media. I mean, there was, like, he would talk to you. Um, He did some interviews, I think, with CNN where they, like, drank together, him and the CNN journalists. Like... He oh, seemed to be a fun guy. Yeah, yeah right? Yeah, they were bartenders. Yeah. yeah, like he seemed like a fun dude. <laughs> Tim, do you think that Lindsey Graham had any lasting impact on the race? <sighs> I don't think so. <laughs> I He definitely brought some class to the kids' table and some, some humor. But I guess the thing is that this cycle, the Republican electorate simply wasn't buying what he was selling. Yeah. That's the lesson. He might be your can't let it go, but a lot of Republican voters... Could. <laughs> is that not right? No, that uh, is it is right. You know. All right. Who's next? Uh, Sue? Uh, so I'm going to talk this week about what I can't let go is a political cartoon that ran in the Washington Post that was taking off of Ted Cruz using his two daughters, who are very adorable, in his own ad of, about using Christmas carols and reading Christmas books. And he features his own kids. And so the Washington Post, an editorial cartoonist there, did a cartoon in which it showed Ted Cruz um, basically suggesting his daughters were monkeys and were dancing mm. and were part of his political campaign. So you've seen it. Tammy, I've seen, seen it. it. I've, I've seen, seen it. it. Scott, you haven't seen I've it? I've not seen I it. I have it. And it Scott. even before, as soon as I saw the cartoon this week, the, my immediate thought was, this is going to be an issue and Ted Cruz is going to raise money off of this. Both of those things happened. <laughs> Ted Cruz has already put out a fundraising email saying uh, they've crossed the line. Uh, I think he was trying to raise about a million dollars off of it. The Washington Post, we should say, did decide that the cartoon was in bad taste. They've taken it down. They've removed it from their website. The editorial page editor said it should never have ran in the first place. Part of what I think it's so interesting about this is even in this really nasty, combative Republican primary, they've still kind of maintained the rule that kids should be left alone. Now, in this case, the media was the one that brought up the kids. But it did also give Ted Cruz this very sympathetic moment. I think people still largely agree that children should be off limits. Donald Trump tweeted about it. Marco Rubio tweeted about it, all saying all coming to Ted Cruz's defense, saying this was beyond the pale. This shouldn't happen. And Everybody seems to be on Ted Cruz's side on this. Scott, so you've seen it for the first time. Scott, what's your reaction? I see the concern. Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, If I were dead, I'd be pretty pretty upset about that. I mean, I guess my my head just goes right to, um, I think it was a can't let it go from a couple of weeks ago, the raw footage that the uh, the Cruz campaign posted um, for their pack to use for for advertising. And And he has very prominently put his children in his campaign ads. But he's not the only one. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Also, side point, I still think it's interesting that it shows how potent and visceral people can react to political cartoons and how they they can Gone away. still really <laughs> just like drive something. It reminds me almost of the New Yorker cover in the 2008 race that depicted Barack Obama oh, and Michelle yeah. Obama as, as radicals and, and the conversation that that prompted and provoked. And I feel like this is a, a very on a minor scale, one of those issues that just a simple image just totally lit the, the field on fire. Scott, what can you not let go this week? 
Well, being a data reporter and the, the news that was that we were talking about this week, I guess I really couldn't let that go, but we've already talked about that. So I'll say, in the Christmas spirit, this morning when I was reading the paper, uh, I, I came across a couple different articles. One was in uh, the Onions AV Club and was one was in the New York Times. And they were all about how Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas has become like just as much of a classic Christmas oh, yeah. song as as these older ones, and and, and just kind this of is a perfect Christmas song. Yeah, and just kind of breaking down what in it kind of makes it makes it jump. And so, not, what makes it jump? I, I'm not too musical, so I'm probably getting this wrong. But really, w- one of the things was just kind of how basically the notes are structured and how very simple it is in the end. But also how she kind of uh, took a much more classic approach, and you have a lot of that Phil Spector type sound. Yeah, with kind like, of like wall of sound. Kind yeah, of thing yeah. Going she's on. got a wall of sound. She's got like the bells. She's got the key. it. Just kind of hits you all at once, and. and and um, I don't know. I like Mariah Carey. Used to like Mariah Carey in the '90s a lot. I still <laughs> like Mariah Carey. I still like her too. I mean, if uh, if if a uh, a debate happened to be in Las Vegas when she was doing her Vegas show, I might try to go. <laughs> but um, it's a good Christmas song. Yeah, you know, in Mariah Carey Christmas song news, I saw also this mm-hmm. week that oh yeah, play that. Song. Yeah, please. I want to hear that. She's sitting you with that wall. Yeah. Bong. It's very oh, Phil Spector. Yeah. Especially and the I mean, second like, the one, it all picks up. The thing that always works with Mariah, she can sing, or yeah. she could sing, right? Like, she could sing the phone book to me. I would love it. Although, isn't this the only song in like the past twenty or thirty years and, uh, that's actually become a number one Christmas song? Exactly. Like the hardest egg, <laughs> yeah. like the hardest thing to crack yeah. in music is making but a hit Christmas song. Speaking of number ones, it was announced this week that a company named Play Network, which creates playlists for more than four hundred stores, announced this week that. Um, this song was bumped to number two in terms of most played Christmas songs. Uh, the new number one is the Shins cover of Paul McCartney's Wonderful Christmas Time. Wow. Which, huh? the original song, I think, is like one of the worst Christmas oh, so songs bad. of all time. Yeah, so Play Network says that now the Shins cover of Paul McCartney's Wonderful Christmas Time has been deemed the most popular holiday song consumers want to hear most this time of year. The mood is right. This is not. I don't like this. Isn't it in a commercial? Maybe that has something to do Uh, with it. But the original song is terrible. Better than Mariah Carey. No, no. Well, I think it depends on your taste. No. Are you? Are you not? You think it's better than the Mariah Carey song? This is more in line with my aesthetic. I was trying to end on a happy holiday note, but now there is division in the podcast. (laughs) It's going to be a battle royale. (laughs) Team Mimi over here. Um. Okay, I don't have a can't let it go this week. Is that bad? Maybe that was your can't I'm let it go. I'm just letting it all go. I think go. that was your can't let it go. Okay. Tweet at us oh, yeah, at NPR Politics <laughs> to let us know <laughs> what song should have the rightful throne as number one Christmas song of all time and forever. Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You or whatever the hell that other song was. <laughs> <laughs> what was the song called? A Wonderful Christmas Time by The Shins. All right, one more thing before we end the show. We have to share this very special 2016 campaign version of The Night Before Christmas, written and performed by our very own journalist emeritus, as he calls himself, Ron Elving, who you've heard on the podcast before. Um, how do we set this up? Have it's you guys a, heard this yet? It's Who's a little, heard it? I have not heard it. I have I've heard, heard it. it. I've heard it. I heard part of it. It's a little gift from Ron to it's us. It's a big gift. It's fiction. It's Total fun. fiction. Uh, all right, let's play it. was the night before Christmas, <laughs> and all through the land, oh. not one candidate spoke. No, not even Rand. Not a <laughs> voice could be heard at a town hall or forum. 
not even Pataki or poor Rick Santorum. The pollsters were nestled all snug in their beds with echoes of focus groups still in their heads. Mama in her headscarf and I in my hoodie had just settled down in our NPR footies. <laughs> when on CNN there arose such a clatter, I grabbed my remote to see what was the matter. Unmuted, the wolf imparted the latest. Survey results showing who's now the greatest. These mind-boggling findings had Hillary behind, as Bernie's believers outnumbered her kind. And giving them both a case of the fidgets was Martin O'Malley who made double digits. Yet the grandest of shocks was not Clinton's number, but the GOP, as if roused from its slumber, deserting the Donald and flocking to Huck. That Arkansas pastor, long down on his luck. Astounding percentages flew across my screen. No panel of pundits could say what it means. The last shall be first is no longer a fable, as the reverend ascends from the dread kitty table. Then what to my wondering eyes should appear but a Rubio hologram, shaking with fear. He looked like a ghost from that old Dickens play. I'm Clinton's worst nightmare, was all he could say. You're in the wrong story, I said with alarm. You're looking for Scrooge or the White Christmas Farm. You should be in Iowa or in Nevada or trying to look at the DNC's data. I don't need those places, young Rubio grinned. When I win my home state, they'll be sucking wind. After Florida, Ted Cruz can just kiss my fanny. Cause I'll be the man, just like Giuliani. I'll beat that Jeb Bush. And Ben Carson, too. And that blowhard Trump will be just about through. Smarty Carly will wish she were still at HP. Maybe Christy or Kasich could be my VP. It's all an illusion, I said to my bride. And I really don't know how this guy got inside. So humor him now and don't be a doubter. He may just disappear if I turn off the router. So I wished Marco luck as I slipped out of bed. No, don't disconnect me, the hologram pled. To the cable I lunged in the box on the wall. Now dash away, dash away, dash away all. But I heard him to mutter ere he vanished from sight. Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good night. He gets a slow clap. Run, 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 run. I love that, man. Uh, I do. That was special. That was great. That was weird. I, was, I like the way he says hologram. <laughs> Thoughts on this, guys? I think we just need to leave it there with Ron, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think he said everything there is to say. Let Ron have that one. <laughs> that's Ron's. Okay, that's it for this week. Happy holidays. Safe travels. Thank you for listening. Let us know if you like the show. Find us on Twitter and catch our political coverage on your local public radio station as well. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Tamara Keith, and I'm going to say Merry Christmas so that there's no war on Christmas meme. All right. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover tech and politics. And I'm Susan Davis, and I cover Congress. We will see you next time on the NPR Politics Podcast. Thanks for listening to the show this year. We want to let you know that this holiday season, NPR podcasts have you covered, no matter what your mood. Political or science insights to share with your feisty aunt done. Surprising stories and interviews to discuss and debate, 
Yes. Year-end lists of the best movies, music, and books, that too, along with stories you can escape with for some holiday alone time. Discover some new favorite podcasts now at npr.org slash podcasts or on the NPR One app. And enjoy the holidays.